You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast about issues and innovations in women's health from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. Endometriosis affects around 1 in 10 women with symptoms like pelvic pain, irregular bleeding, or pain during sex. Since March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, I talked to the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN's resident endo expert, Dr. Kara King. We discuss endo symptoms, different paths for treatment, and what she thinks needs to change to help endometriosis patients get to a diagnosis faster. I am so excited to be talking to our first three-peat guest, Dr. Kara King. She's joining us for her third podcast. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you, Jackie. It's, it's uh, amazing to be here. I appreciate the offer. So I wanted to do an episode on endometriosis, and you were uh, the clear first choice to talk to um, to learn a little bit more about this quite common condition, actually. So to start with, what is endometriosis? So endometriosis is when tissue very similar to the glands and stroma on the inside of the uterus actually implant outside of the uterus. So this tissue should really only be on the inside. This is a tissue that gets thick every month before a woman has their period and it sloughs off when they have their period. And when it implants on the outside, and it can be anywhere, it could be on ovaries, tubes, bowel, bladder, all the way up to the thoracic diaphragm and even heart and brain. When it implants outside of the uterus, that's when it's called endometriosis. Do we know what causes it? That is a great question that many people are still looking into. So there are a lot of different theories, but there's no one theory that fits all mechanisms of where we find endometriosis. So the most common theory that um, we think about is something called retrograde menstruation. And what that is is when women have their periods, bleeding goes backwards through their tubes, and then that implants inside the pelvis. But I will say that probably more than 90% of women have some level of retrograde menstruation, and not all of those women have endometriosis. So there must be other mechanisms that are also at play. Other things that we think about is metaplasia or changing of the cells that might be within the pelvic lining. We also think that some of these cells may travel through the bloodstream or travel through the, the lymphatic system, and that may explain some of the more distant areas of endometriosis, like in people's eyes or in their hearts, that they must travel in a a different mechanism than just traveling backwards through the tubes. So those are the most common theories, but they are all definitely at play, and sometimes multiple theories are at play within the same person. How common is endometriosis in the general population? So in all comers, so in the general reproductive age population, we think probably about 7 to 10% of women have endometriosis. Now, certain subpopulations are definitely predisposed to having a higher level of endo. Um, The populations that we see this much higher in are patients with infertility, where probably about 20 to 47% of women have uh, endometriosis in the infertility population. And then within the population of chronic pelvic pain, up to about 80% of women can have endometriosis in that population. If someone has endometriosis, what does it feel like? What are some of the common symptoms or complaints? I think the most common symptom that women have is pelvic pain, and that can manifest in multiple different ways. So many women explain severe cramping with their actual period. Some women also have pain in between periods. Women also complain of painful urination, painful bowel movements, painful intercourse. So pain is by far the number one thing that people present in my office with. 
What about any like abnormal menstrual cycles or bleeding? Yeah, Is that yeah. true? So outside of pain, women also oftentimes present with heavy periods, sometimes abnormal uterine bleeding, so irregular periods. And then um, women also present with infertility. That absolutely comes up as well. I wanted to ask, uh, can endometriosis affect fertility? It can absolutely impact infertility. And we think there's probably two main ways that that happens. So number one, and the obvious way, is causing severe adhesions. So endometriosis, if you think about it, every month these ectopic areas in your pelvis are also having these mini periods because they're influenced by your ovaries. And all these areas of bleeding can cause a lot of fibrosis and scar tissue. And when that happens on your fallopian tubes, it can kink off that pathway of the egg and the sperm meeting. So that's an obvious way that the sperm and egg sometimes won't meet just from the severe scar tissue. Outside of that, though, we also see that women with very superficial endometriosis, so endo that's not necessarily causing a lot of scarring, but present in the pelvis, can also lead to decreased rates of fertility. And we think this is most likely because endometriosis causes a very hostile environment in the pelvis. And that hostile environment can then lead to decreased quality of eggs and sometimes even damage to the sperm. Are there any connections between endometriosis and future cancer risk? And that's a great question that I get a lot as well. So there can be malignant transformation of endometriomas. An endometrioma is an actual cyst of the ovary. So there can be malignant transformation. And the two main cancers that we see associated with endometriosis is clear cell ovarian cancer as well as endometrioid ovarian cancer. Women with these type of um, ovarian cysts do actually have a fourfold increase of developing these type of cancers. But within that realm, it's still extremely very small population of women who do develop cancer. So I would say there is an association between these type of cancers and, and endometriomas. There's still a very, very small risk of women that do go on to develop cancer. And because of that, we don't recommend any routine screening for these women. If you have a, a patient coming in who um, is complaining of pelvic pain, maybe some uh, heavy menstrual bleeding or irregular bleeding, and, and you kind of think, oh, maybe this is endometriosis, what are the criteria? What do you look for to determine whether it is or isn't? So the short answer is the only definitive way to diagnose endometriosis is through surgery, visually seeing those lesions, excising it, and then looking at it underneath a microscope. So the short answer is that is the only way to definitively diagnose endometriosis. But within that, how do I know who to even bring to surgery and what increases my thought process that someone has endometriosis? And I'd say the main ways is number one, patient history. So people who come in with abnormal uterine bleeding and pelvic pain and maybe some painful intercourse, that will you know, tip my interest that endometriosis may be high in my differential. The second part of it is a very detailed physical exam. So when I do my, my physical exams, I am very deliberate and thoughtful with my pelvic exam, evaluating the bladder, separate from the, the, the bowels, separate from the muscles down below, separate from the cervix, uterus, tubes, and ovaries. And so I can really get a good sense on where the areas of pain are. With that exam, if they have deeply infiltrating endometriosis, and so deeply infiltrating is defined as more than five millimeters below the peritoneal surface, so larger nodules, if that's present, I oftentimes can feel that on exam. So that will tip me off as well. The third part of that diagnosis is typically imaging. So ultrasound is usually our gold standard as a first-line imaging technique. However, it's very dependent 
on the sonographer or person actually getting that image to tell me what I'm looking for. So someone could very possibly have a very normal ultrasound and have some pretty severe endometriosis. So I can't base ultrasound alone on that diagnosis of endometriosis. An MRI is another image that can sometimes have a little bit more sensitivity for diagnosing these deeper areas of endometriosis. And again, when ultrasound techs are very highly trained in detecting endo, it can be equal to MRI. But when sonographers aren't trained in that, an MRI can offer a little bit more insight on what's going on in the pelvis. How long, on average, does it take from um, the patient presenting the first time with a complaint of pelvic pain or irregular bleeding to eventually arriving at an endometriosis official diagnosis? Now, this answer can be quite embarrassing, to be honest. Studies have looked at this, and appallingly, the average time from patient presentation to diagnosis is about seven to 10 years. What? It's astounding. I absolutely agree. And I think one of the reasons why it has taken, it takes so many patients that long to confirm a diagnosis is that these symptoms can overlap with so many other generalized symptoms that many providers uh, don't give it, uh, don't give these symptoms the, um, the priorities that they deserve or the attention that they deserve. I hear many times women tell me that their physician tells them, and this is just what periods are, welcome to being a woman, this is what you should be feeling, and that is just so far from the truth um, that I'm hoping that by educating patients and educating providers that we can definitely shorten this time between presentation and diagnosis. So seven to 10 years really feels like a, a long time um, to, to arrive at a diagnosis, especially for something that sounds like it can be very difficult and debilitating. Um, what, do, what do you think could change or be different in medical education to even help physicians arrive at that diagnosis a little more quickly? So I, I absolutely, absolutely agree that this goes back to medical education and making our... Um, making our physicians more knowledgeable about different ways that endometriosis can present and to not stereotype women who come in with these type of symptoms. So I oftentimes see my patients stereotyped into a hole that has made them spiral into a place that's not, that was not them when they initially presented. And so the longer we wait to make this diagnosis, the more chronic pain syndrome central sensitization, myofascial pain syndromes, many other things start coming into play, which then in turn can infect mood, right? Depression and anxiety, and all those things can then snowball into a picture that could possibly have been preventable if we had diagnosed this earlier. So I think educating our providers to take our patients' complaints seriously and you know, if you want to try medical therapy first, I think that is great. But if it doesn't work within about six months, listen to the patient that it's not working over the course of about six months and refer them to somebody who is specially trained in endometriosis, in endometriosis to do the proper workup. So if the average diagnosis time is something like seven to 10 years, that means this is really a chronic, ongoing condition for women. Absolutely. And when it takes seven to 10 years to, to get this diagnosis, that means that woman's been living with some pretty severe pain for seven to 10 years. So by the time they come and see me, oftentimes they have more than just endometriosis, but more of a chronic pelvic pain picture. 
When people come in with that chronic pelvic pain picture, it requires a much different approach in that just treating the endometriosis oftentimes won't treat the entire picture of pain. And within endometriosis, meaning building up that chronic condition until they are actually diagnosed, even from that point forward, endo is considered a, a chronic disease. So once you're diagnosed with this, you oftentimes need long-term management of your endo, whether that be medical management, plus or minus surgical management. It's something that should definitely be thought through for a, for a lifelong approach. What does management or treatment look like? So what happens after you get that diagnosis? How do you counsel patients on where to go? So options in regard to endometriosis usually include different modalities of medical therapy versus surgical therapy. Now, the way we decide on where to start first and how to progress through these options is oftentimes women's priorities. So if I have a patient coming to me who desires pregnancy, then hormonal suppression is not going to be an option for that patient, right? So if I put somebody on birth control who's trying to get pregnant, they're, they're not going to get pregnant. So we should eliminate that option pretty quickly on, on our list of options that we can do. So things that I think about are future fertility plans, previous surgical history, um, as well as the level of pain that a woman has. So all those things come into play, and that helps us uh, as a team figure out what's the best order of, of how, to, how to manage her symptoms. So you mentioned medical and surgical options. What, what do the surgeries look like? What are the surgical management options? <clears throat> so the surgical management options typically include laparoscopy. So laparoscopy is when we take a small camera and put it through, typically the belly button, and look at everything in the pelvis. And there's different ways we can manage this, just like you mentioned. So part of the way we um, counsel regarding management is, again, infertility options. So if a woman has a large ovarian cyst and endometrioma, we want to be very cognizant of, of preserving her ovarian reserve. And our management may be a little bit different in someone depending on how long they've been trying, their age, and again, if they're planning IVF or not. So some surgical management is, is um, um, dependent on infertility things and very closely decided with their REI physician or their, their reproductive endocrinology infertility physician. From <clears throat> outside of that, the two main ways to treat endometriosis surgically would be uh, fulguration or ablation versus laparoscopic excision. So laparoscopic fulguration or ablation is when you can go in and actually just burn the lesions. Now this, in my opinion, is very limited. And it's very limited because, number one, you don't actually get a tissue diagnosis. So if you just go and burn the lesions, you never actually know if, if what you burned was actually endometriosis. Lots of studies look at what endo looks like, and it can look like many, many different things. It can be red or brown or clear or pink. And so sometimes we're wrong when we think something's endo. And it's not, but we never get that diagnosis. And then if we tag somebody with that endometriosis diagnosis for the rest of their life, it's a really big deal. So I think getting a tissue diagnosis is pivotal in long-term management. Vulgaration is also really limited because if that lesion is over something such as a big blood vessel or the ureter or the bowel or the bladder, you can't burn that lesion because if you do, you'll damage what's underneath. So again, you're limited in regard to location. And three, when you burn lesions, you never actually know if you've gotten the entire lesion. So endometriosis is oftentimes, I consider, an iceberg where you'll see what's on the tip, on the top, but you never actually know how deep it goes. And the way you can figure out how deep it goes is by excising it and taking it out. If you just burn the top of it 
and you don't get the whole lesion, it's going to come back. You actually didn't even treat it. It's not even really a recurrence because it, has, it was actually never eliminated. And so uh, fulguration, in my opinion, is very limited. Excision is when you go in and actually remove that entire lesion. That gives you a tissue diagnosis. It keeps the underlying structure safe. And it also ensures that you got the entire lesion out. And there's many times where I'll think a lesion is much smaller than it actually is, but when I go to excise it, I notice that it's much deeper and requires a lot more dissection. So I think it's very important to actually perform excision. Unfortunately, not a lot of providers are trained in the excision technique. And so that is very limiting for a lot of surgeons in that if they're not trained in it, they can't perform that. Um, so that's one uh, deciphering surgical management between fulguration and excision. So when I'm, I'm kind of assuming when patients come to see you, they're, they're getting ready for maybe a surgical treatment or a surgical management. So um, how, do you, how do you work with them and how do you kind of counsel them down uh, the path that'll work best for them? Yeah, so preoperative counseling is nine-tenths of the entire process, meaning surgery is oftentimes the easy part. It's the preoperative counseling, the preoperative preparation that should be the time-consuming part. Because endometriosis is a disease that you actually never really know what you're getting into until you get into surgery. And I always wanna know exactly what my patient wants me to do before I get in there, which is why I work really hard preoperatively to do a good physical exam, oftentimes get an MRI if I'm worried about rectal vaginal disease, and that way I can give all these possibilities to my patient and they can tell me exactly how aggressive they want me to be and how much excision they actually want. So from a preoperative standpoint, when a patient comes to me, um, we oftentimes have a very lengthy conversation on the possibilities that, that uh, we may find. And that way I can do exactly you know, the amount of surgery that they want. As a patient's getting ready for their surgery, what kinds of questions should they be making sure to ask their physician and their surgeon? So number one, I want to give patients the confidence to ask very deliberate and straightforward questions to their surgeon in regard to both their, surgeon, their surgeon's experience as well as their technique. I have so many patients who come to me and always start with an apology, meaning I'm so sorry to ask you this, but like how many, how many cases have you done? I'm so sorry to ask you this, but like they're embarrassed to ask questions to their surgeon about their, about their training and about their experience. I want to empower women to ask those questions. And surgeons should be extremely welcoming to those questions because that shows that the patient is well-read and informed. Um, and I want the patient to be fully comfortable with the surgery that they're signing up for. So questions I would really encourage patients to ask their physicians is how many endometriosis surgeries their physician does on a monthly um, or yearly basis. I would encourage patients to ask if the, if the surgeon prefers um, fulguration versus excision of the endometriosis, and if their surgeon is actually trained in excision of endometriosis. I would also ask, um, encourage the patient to ask their surgeon, what do they do if when they start the surgery, the patient actually has a lot more disease than was initially thought that they were going to have? So if the surgeon starts the surgery and they see that the disease is a lot more extensive, what do they do? Do they just stop the surgery? Do they have people in-house, such as colorectal surgeons or urologists, that urologist that they can call in? Is a surgeon themselves trained to handle that type of disease? That just helps uh, the patient understand um, how, how well trained their surgeon is and, um, and what their game plan is if it's not exactly what they thought preoperatively. What do you wish that more people knew or understood about endometriosis? Besides, I'm sure, 
a cure would be wonderful, but... Yes, a cure would be wonderful, or an easier way to diagnose outside of surgery, right, which we are working on. You know, I think um, I really want to educate patients, number one, to be advocates for themselves, so there isn't a seven to ten year delay between presenting to their physician and diagnosis, and also um, that there's there's multiple ways to treat endometriosis, both from a medical standpoint as well as from a surgical standpoint. So there's a lot of different medications that we can use, um, the, which often suppress the disease, but medications typically do not treat the disease, so make sure they understand that. Um, and one medication that patients always ask me about is Lupron, which many people recommend, which is um, an injection that you can get that makes you go into a pseudomenopause state. Many physicians say this is first line for their patients, and I um, would just encourage patients to understand that that is most definitely not first line, and there's many other medical modalities out there that are available. And also that there's different levels of training for endometriosis surgeons, and to really um, be thoughtful about who they choose to have, have perform their surgery. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's been, it's been a great morning. Be sure to join us for the next Women's Health Cast when we will learn all about periods. I sat down with UW-OBGYN resident physician Dr. Lauren Varelli to ask tons of questions about the mechanics of menstruation. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to the Women's Health Cast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.